I think we should start. Sure. Okay. Mansoor? Yes, madam, go ahead, madam. Okay, see. Uh, on behalf of PIDE and Dr. Nadeem Ulhaq, uh, who couldn't be here uh, with us today, something Arjun came up. I welcome you all to the launch of the latest book by Dr. Anita Weiss titled Countering Violent Extremism in Pakistan. The last decade, I think, is a decade which we all would like to forget. It's a decade that saw thousands of casualties, both civilian and military in Pakistan. It probably affected our psychology forever. Uh, many believe that military solutions are not exactly the lasting solutions and the lasting solutions lie elsewhere. And this is what makes this book very important. We have a great panel of discussants with us. Uh, Dr. Sabah Gulkhatak, a political scientist, Dr. Yaqub Khan Bangash, a historian, and Mr. Raza Rumi, a policy analyst. And before I hand over the mic to Dr. Weiss, I would request Fahad Zulfiqar to introduce her. Fahad, unmute yourself. Thank you so much, ma'am. Thank you so much. Dr. Anita Pais is a professor of international studies at the University of Oregon, where she has been teaching since 1988. She is a doctorate in sociology from UC Berkeley. <clears throat> Dr. Weiss has, has written extensively on social development, gender issues, and political Islam in Pakistan. She's also a member of the editorial board of globalizations, as well as a number of journals on Pakistan. She's also a member of the research advisory board of the Pakistan National Commission on the Status of Women, and has been president and vice president of the American Institute of Pakistan Studies. She was also a distinguished speaker at the PSDE annual meeting in 2002. Dr. Weiss has written a number of books based on her areas of academic interest, which include interpreting Islam, modernity, and women's rights in Pakistan, walls within walls, life histories of working women in the old city of Lahore, development challenges confronting Pakistan with Dr. Sabagul Khatak, who is also one of the discussants for the book today. Pathways to Power, the Domestic Politics of South Asia and Culture, Class and Development in Pakistan, the Emergence of Industrial Bourgeois in Pakistan. Her new book, Countering Violent Extremism in Pakistan, Local Actions, Local Voices, is the result of an extensive fieldwork conducted from 2016 to 2019 in various locales and sub-locales of Pakistan. A very big warm welcome to Dr. Weiss. We are very honored to have today, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you, Fahad. Uh, Dr. Anita, over to you. Well, thank you all. Thank you, Fahad, for uh, inviting me. Thank you, Dore Nayab, for the very sweet introduction. I do want to emphasize the title of the book is not just, I mean, the whole title is Countering Violent Extremism in Pakistan, Local Actions, Local Voices. And this is one of the only books that I've written that I knew the title before I actually, you know, got heavily into writing the book because that was, that was the motivation behind writing this. I, I knew that the Pakistan that people were writing about was not the Pakistan I knew. I'm a sociologist. Sociologists study societies. We study how societies are transforming, how, you know, what, what's actually happening within them. And when I would read things about, about Pakistan, or you talk to people about Pakistan, I mean, 40 years ago, 
um, when I started doing research in the in in Lahore on in I, um, on the industrial bourgeoisie in Punjab. Later on in 1987, I lived in the Walled City where I was doing the research for my later book, Walls Within Walls, Life Histories of Working Women in the Old City of Lahore. All those times, I would say to people that I work on Pakistan, that I do research in Pakistan, and people would say, why? But for the last 20 years, 15 years, I would, 20 years, I would say that I do research on Pakistan and they would go, you do? As if it's like, wow. But that's the thing. There's not a lot of really good sociological analysis of what's happening in Pakistan, the social transformations, but the reality of Pakistan. Um, as I wrote in the, inter in, in the introduction, that what inspired me to write this not, was on the one hand, the attack on the army public school in Peshawar in December, 2014. Um, but I also, what I found is in doing this research that so many people became involved in the work that they do to um, because of the army public school attack as well. But very importantly, what are they doing? They're trying to reassert, reclaim their society their culture, their values. Um, when I talk, I don't know if Timur Rahman is here or if he'll be joining us today. Timur Rahman, the political science professor at LUMS, who is the founder of the rock band LAL in, in Lahore. Um, I went with him to some performances at poor schools where they went. And he said, we're just trying to get, you know, bring happiness back into people's lives. And when I saw these kids at the school standing and dancing and shouting and like, yeah, this is the Pakistan I know. And the Pakistan that became a very important part of me and has been an important part of me for these last 40 years. So um, I guess this is by way of introduction. I did not have the, the various chapters of the book where I've um, I've looked at how um, poetry is being used as a way to counter extremism. Um, what I call in the book resistance poetry and art and music and interactive theater and religious leaders themselves taking a stand to counter extremism. New kinds of educational institutions and then the cat kind of catch-all category of groups and individuals acting of the last chapter. I didn't have these categories laid out in advance. In fact, what I did, I had a few other categories I had assumed that I would write about. And then I also, you know, but cut, pasted, interacted, mixed things up because so many things, so many exciting things are happening throughout Pakistan are pe as people are striving to reclaim their culture and their society and state, this is who we really are. So my intent in writing this book was to not only write a narrative of this is, this is Pakistan, this is, the, this is really Pakistan, but also to tell the world that this is really Pakistan. And I guess that's 
All I wanted to say by way of introductory comments, I'm open for questions or to hear what Saba, Reza, and Yakub want to say. Uh, I think we'll start alphabetically. So Raza, we'll start with you. Oh, okay. That's uh, that's convenient. Uh, so, but but anyway, first of all, it's a uh, thank you very much uh, uh, to Pied for organizing this and inviting me to be a discussant. I followed uh, Anita's work, you know, uh, even before I actually met her, and I'd read most of her work, and uh, obviously. You know, there's a whole continuity in her writings and in her research and scholarship. And with regard to this particular uh, book, Pro Professor Weiss has done a remarkable job of uh, something that uh, um, has not been undertaken by many uh, Pakistani or, uh, you know, foreign uh, researchers, which is to say what actually was happening at the societal level. Uh, as you mentioned, Dorin Ayab, in your introduction about the last decade, and I would say even before, uh, the menace of terrorism, violent extremism, I mean, since the 1980s, and that's what the book locates, uh, post-Afghan Jihad um, <clears throat> transformations that took place in the, both, not just the geopolitical sense, but also how they impacted the very fabric and social and political structures of Pakistan and how uh, we saw, uh, the, you know, the, the decade of 1980s was uh, also the decade when we had this, uh, uh, you know, state-sponsored uh, uh, Islamization and uh, the insertion of uh, jihadist uh, um, ideas and ideology in the curricula, uh, in the public narratives, in the state narratives. I mean, we, we were growing up at that time, and so in a way, we are witnesses to that uh, transformation as well. You know, what the Pakistan television was showing at the time, what kind of writers were being promoted, what kind of teleplays were being presented and all the sort of clerics upon clerics, you know, with the really radical ideologies were being given this extraordinary space in the public domain. And obviously what happened later, uh, we can't completely blame it on, um, on the you know cold war politics although that was the major driver uh, but at the same time what we undertook as a domestic project had some far reaching uh, you know consequences and i think we are still trying to grapple with that but i think um, while the uh, state uh, actually uh, sort of uh, woke up after the um, tragic incident at the army uh, public school in peshawar in uh, late um, at the end of 2014 by enacting uh, and formulating what is known as the National Action Plan in early 2015, uh, supported by both the civil and military uh, principles, but also uh, by a vast majority of, of the Pakistani population. Um, but sadly, uh, you know, there was, a, I mean, there were these 20 points in that National Action Plan, uh, but the uh, the most difficult ones have not even been addressed, unfortunately. The easier, well, I mean, easier in the sense the kinetic ones, quote unquote, or the military solutions, as Dorin Ayat put it, uh, were uh, readily followed and have been uh, consistently 
followed through. And I would definitely say that they've had their impact in in many ways. They've also had some un unintended consequences with uh, and and we see the results of uh, those uh, emerging in the kind of move social movements in the northwest and in karachi where the excesses carried out not just by uh, by that particular war but the war against terror as well are now uh, coming to haunt uh, pakistani's society but but the story again uh, that that that's a, that meta narrative is that of the state is the elite sort of uh, narrative of what the US and what the Saudis and what the Soviets and what the Pakistani military and what the Pakistani, uh, you know, state was, were doing, but what, what, uh, what were the people doing? So in a way, uh, uh, um, P P Professor Weiss's book is a, is a most valuable document of these uh, responses, these, uh, these uh, responses by Pakistan's vibrant, civil society that refuses to go away, that refuses to uh, be suppressed and uh, be silenced. Uh, the educationists, the poets, the writers, the uh, musicians, and especially the younger people, which is most remarkable. You know, a lot of these um, movements, a lot of these initiatives that uh, have been very meticulously documented by Dr. Weiss and, and analyzed as well and, and put into context are being led by young people. And that is what uh, is so interesting and at the same time reassuring. And, uh, you know, the case studies uh, vary from uh, uh, the Bacha Khan school's system in Khyber uh, Pakhtunkhwa uh, to the kind of musical groups and more, more uh, importantly, uh, the poetries, you know, the poetries in, in regional languages and national languages. And, you know, uh, as somebody who has been trying to write about this, I mean, uh, uh, often these were discoveries for me as well, you know, what the Saraiki poets were writing, what the Pashto poets were uh, composing while, while they were being droned or bombed or barricaded or, or stopped at checkpoints. And, you know, those are really insightful um, sort of records of um, the uh, uh, not just uh, people's uh, history, but also of a particular, particularly important moment uh, in Pakistan's history. And we still are located in that moment. And that is why I think as a source uh, of, uh, you know, any, any historian, any future historian, and maybe Dr. Bangish will, look, uh, will, will explain that further, uh, these are most valuable uh, sources uh, where we can sort of try both challenge uh, the larger meta elite narratives of uh, what ails Pakistan or what is the future direction of Pakistan, but also in a way it presents for a very different picture of Pakistani society and, and its, uh, uh, its diverse, uh, you know, populations and its diverse uh, peoples. Uh, who, uh, even in these most difficult and trying of times, uh, tried to counter a, a very um, distinct uh, state project, of course, supported, aided, financed by foreign uh, forces, but, you know, very much a domestic uh, agenda of the ruling classes uh, to, uh, to engineer a society uh, in the, that would fit into their uh, both domestic and foreign policies, but I'll, I think I'll stop here uh, and maybe uh, you know say a bit more uh, once the other panelists have spoken. 
Thank you, Raza. Uh, Dr. Sabah Khatak. Um, thank you very much. Um, so it's a pleasure to talk about Anita's book. Um, uh, Anita has been coming to Pakistan for 40 years, Anita. Um, and as such, her knowledge about 40, Pakistan 40, is... Uh, Sorry? 43 years. First 43. January, I'm so old now. First January, 1978. Wow. Okay. Um, so just a year before the Soviet invasion, or two years, whatever. Yeah, that was December 79. Um, so um, as such, 43 years. So obviously, Anita knows Pakistan as well as any one of us. Uh, know it uh, and her knowledge about uh, Pakistan's uh, culture, the issues uh, people face, all of us face, whether it's identity or violence or um, uh, political developments or the multiple coups we've had to undergo. Uh, Anita's familiar with that and has been sort of uh, sometimes been here to witness uh, the events as they have un unfolded. Also, I I mean, knowing Anita, I just thought I should sort of talk a little bit about you, Anita, that you've lived in villages in Pakistan because you have friends who were living in villages. You've lived, in, you know, you've stayed with different people, whether in the Punjab or in Karachi or in Swat or in Sawabi, you know, you name it. And so, yeah, and all the major cities, of course, are very much there. Um, so in that sense, uh, you, you know, you're not really uh, an outsider. Um, you've known Pakistan and in fact recently I was looking at uh, home-based workers and I found myself going to Anita's work on home-based workers, uh, her book on Walls Within Walls, Life Histories of Working Women in the Old City of Lahore that uh, she published in, when was it Anita, 1990? The first, the first edition came out in 1992, and then OUP republished it. I mean, OUP had a second edition that I modified and added to, and that was 2002. So, uh, and what was interesting was that I found Anita's insights in that book as valid today for home-based women workers as they were 30 years, almost 30 years ago. And, uh, you know, um, in, and that sort of brings me to her scholarship. Uh, uh, also, by the way, Anita, you've promised to show me the walled city of Lahore. So that shows how much of an insider you are. I haven't seen the walled city and I'm looking forward to a guided tour from you. Um, but coming to this book, um, Countering Violent Extremism in Pakistan, um, Local Actions, Local Voices, uh, 
because in a sense uh, you kept on discussing different chapters with me so i feel like i i already knew the book but when i was reading it actually uh, the the finished volume i felt i learned a lot from it but uh, before i go into the details i just wanted to refer to an article that i don't know somehow i I, when I read it, it really touched my heart and it was, it's an article, a newspaper article that Farooq Soleria wrote many, many years ago. It's called Mandela's in our closets. And he wrote about uh, Bacha Khan, uh, saying that Bacha Khan spent about as many years in jails as did Mandela. He was equally a follower of Gandhi, believed in nonviolence. Uh, but he went on to name many other leaders in Pakistan, among them, and many of you will not be familiar with their names, um, Mirza Ibrahim, who was a trade unionist, uh, and who started off by participating in the Khilafat movement at the age of 16. He died in 1999 at the age of 94 and had been in jails, both British uh, as well as Pakistani jails for a quarter of his life. Uh, similarly, uh, Farooq has talked about Ghos Baksh Bizenjo, GM Sayyad, Haider Baksh Jatoi, um, many others. Uh, and he writes about the fact that we want, he ends his article by saying, we want Mandela's for others we don't want to recognize our own. And in, in a sense, Anita is doing that for the many, many people who she has interviewed, who she has interacted with in this book, where she's highlighting not the usual. I mean, I can take many, many issues with the book by saying, oh, but you are not dealing with how you define violence or what is structural violence and so on and so forth. Anita is basically looking for where hope lies and where the Mandela's that we like to bury, their voices are brought out. And for me, that is the most important contribution of this book. Um, there's much to learn because Anita has touched upon several um, you know, aspects, whether it's poetry and going into Pashto and Sindhi poetry to, to um, highlight resistance poetry to talk about, you know, one line that she had said, I'm neither Shia nor Sunni, uh, more Sufi uh, poetry. Uh, those are the kinds of uh, nuanced ways of understanding our own selves, our own cultures. Uh, that not many people understand or write about, especially in the West. So for me, every time there is something negative that's happening, a bomb blast or something you see, you know, on the cover of, say, Time magazine or some other uh, publication, bearded men with hatred on their faces chanting some slogans. Uh, and so this brings out that other side of Pakistan that so few uh, know about. Um, so for me, that is what is at the heart of the book, whether she's writing about music, performance, art, religion, 
uh, itself. And I found that chapter to be particularly helpful, at least for my own understanding, because Anita brings out all the voices. It's not that there's only one type of uh, Malvis or you know, she talks about not just the Muslims, but also Christians and Hindus and Sikhs. Am I still, um, okay, only the poster changed. I thought I've lost connection. Um, so, so in that sense, I felt like that was a, a very complex, uh, lots of very complex ideas that Anita has made very readable uh, for, for any uh, student. Uh, who would be able to understand uh, what it means to be a Pakistani with all its contradictions, with all its, uh, you know, complicated ways of looking at things. But what is important about this book is that it does away with the dominant discourses and is not necessarily viewing everything through the lens of the dominant discourse. It's going away from that and highlighting an aspect that very few uh, bother to look at. These uh, perspectives may not be very common. Uh, they may not be, you know, widely held perhaps, but they're very much there in our, so embedded in our social fabric. And that is what I think is very important about this book. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you, Saba. Before we move on, I probably should have respond, commented on what Reza said, because now I'm forgetting what I wanted to say. But just two things about what Saba has said. Um, the most challenging part of that was getting this, the Sindhi poetry translated. And I have to give a shout out to everybody. I mean, um, everybody in who had helped me um, all over the province of Sindh, people who had helped me translate. And it was a little less challenging because I have so many dear Pakhtun, you know, um, Pashto-speaking friends who, um, including um, uh, Zenab Adnan, who did a lot of the translation um, of, the, of the Pashto poetry, but the Sindhi poetry was challenging. The other thing also is that I didn't set out saying I'm going to only write about Sindhi and Pashto poetry. I started out looking at Punjabi and Urdu and all, but it was it was um, it was it was a decision that I made when I realized that what was binding these two together was really resist the sense of resistance. Hafiz Nizamani in Sindh really captured that sense of resistance. And I hope you can all read that section that Sabo is referring to. I mean, he is the contemporary manifestation of Sechel Sarmast, the, you know, the, the, old, the poet who lived 500 years, 400 years ago. Um, <clears throat> but I think both Reza and Saba really captured my motivation for writing the book and really what it's about. I mean, that's why I said it's the local actions and the local voices that animated me, that excited me and still excite me. I mean, the reason I have this virtual background today, this is a Sufi shrine in Southwest Sindh because I like to use Pakistani, you know, Pakistani photographs, virtual backgrounds because they, 
make me feel that I'm not isolated and in lockdown in Eugene, Oregon, because, and I will be returning to Pakistan at some time. But anyhow, Yakub, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Go ahead, Yakub. Thank you so much. Uh, and uh, yeah, um, you know, I'm very happy to be a part of, of, of this, of this uh, panel. Um, and I do want, want to say that, that of course, as Anita was uh, working on this book, we have had several, several chats about um, aspects of this. Um, and in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, we were chat chatting about it yet, yet again. Uh, so a lot of these things, uh, you know, kind of have been coming up uh, through the years. Um, I should say one of the things that I uh, realized as soon as I, when I read the book for the first time, like altogether, was the fact that it was a very honest work. Uh, it, just didn't say, oh, these are the great hopeful things and everything is going to get better. Uh, it identified the pitfalls in it. Uh, it identified that there are huge problems in Pakistan. It acknowledged that there were still lots of serious issues remaining. So it, it wasn't trying to kind of whitewash it or to sideline it and say, well, you know, no, uh, so many bad things are not re really happening uh, and it's all good and, you know, things are dramatically improving. So I really appreciated the way it was very honest. Uh, for example, you know, I can just give, give the example from the, from the chapter that actually uh, talks on uh, interfaith harmony. It actually begins with a discussion on the attacks on different religious communities in Pakistan. So it doesn't say that, you know, these things don't happen. It acknowledges it acknowledges them as a reality, but it also then moves on to talk about where uh, there is hope and where uh, people have actually made uh, immense strides in uh, promoting interfaith harm harmony. Um, I want to just mention a few kind of a, uh, specific things uh, in, in the book, which, which I found uh, very interesting and which kind of, um, you know, uh, like resonated with, with me. Um, I should say as a historian, you know, uh, we usually don't dabble into sociology and when we read sociology, we, we don't really always get it. Uh, but I think one of the great things that Anita does is uh, she makes it understandable uh, to uh, historians and actually, in fact, a number of uh, places, you know, like on the book, I have, I have marks and saying, oh, this is what I can quote and this is what, what, what I can use. Uh, because it connects the lived, the lived reality of the people of Pakistan to its history, uh, to what is happening around them, um, in a very kind of a powerful uh, and a real, real, and a real manner. And I think that is very important to, to document because these things kind of get lost by the wayside. And I think it's also very important, you know, as as Raza was actually talking about that, you know, since the 1980s, there has been resist, resistance uh, to all sorts of things that have been happening in Pakistan. And of course, Anita's uh, pre previous work uh, has actually talked about that. But it's also very important to document it together to actually see that this actually is part of this larger movement of resistance, which I really see in a very general sense. Uh, very natural to people of South Asia. Uh, you know, people of South Asia, I think, have, have always been, uh, uh, you know, uh, resisting uh, takeover by, you know, outside ideas or ideas that are kind of imposed on them. And they've always resisted against, against them. Uh, and even though uh, the, the, the rulers of the day might succeed in at least imposing them, uh, a groundswell of resistance remains and never dies. Uh, you know, just yesterday, I was actually reminded of this when we had a keynote at our um, at our Think Fest uh, with uh, Dr. Shirin Abadi and Hina and Hina Jilani, and there when 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 they were in con conversation, there, there there was a moment when uh, Dr. Shirin Abadi was actually narrating how bad the position of women was in uh, Iran. Uh, to which Hina actually said, "Well, it's not that bad in in Pakistan." And 
at some level, it was very interesting to actually say, wow, you know, it is pretty bad, but you know, it's not as bad as Iran. And there was this, you know, there, there's this great resistance to all the laws that that, dis, that discriminate against women in Pakistan, you know, uh, the Women Action Forum and all the other kinds of forums have really sort of, you know, been at the vanguard of this resistance. So there's always been these things. Yes, we have disc discriminatory laws against women in, in Pakistan, but there are women groups uh, that for the last 30, 35, 40 years have been working against it and, you know, are creating coalitions to actually mitigate those effects. And I think a great success is also uh, that, you know, all those anti-women laws that we have, uh, the application of a lot of them has been restricted to a large extent. And I think that shows the success of this reaction against these kinds of discriminatory laws. And I think therefore in, in that broader context, Anita's work I, I think is very important uh, because it actually looks at very interesting case studies um, and uh, uh, kind of brings them together for us to see this larger picture that amidst all this turmoil uh, that at some level keeps on increasing in Pakistan, we have these islands of hope. We have these islands where uh, things are uh, you know progressing and progressive ideas like still remain and most importantly that they are from the grassroots uh, because that's a very important thing a lot of the times and of course you know they come and go uh, throughout the um, narrative yes there are ngos involved in in all of all of all of all of this yes ngos kind of promote uh, a certain kind of uh, uh, thinking and agenda depending on who the donor is and everything but a lot of what anita has actually uh, uh, um, written about um, are just regular people you know they're not funded by an NGO even a local NGO for that matter let let, let alone an, in, an international one uh, most of the time you know we haven't even heard their names much you know till Anita now actually has actually brought them brought them together so these are really sort of very uh, basic uh, sort of uh, local, you know, as the title itself says, these are local responses, uh, which are actually not touched by um, any kind of even a national agenda, let, let alone an international agenda. It's just a local response to what is happening at that time. And I really find that beautiful because that is something that I think uh, distinguishes uh, Pakistan and South and South Asia, for that matter. You know, we see that in India uh, too, and uh, you know, in Bangladesh and in and in Sri Lanka, uh, that South Asians are of a particular type as people, and they respond to things in a particular way, and they don't kind of take things lying down. And that continuous response, I think, is really important. And I really, really want to kind of you know uh, uh, underline it twice because a lot of the times Pakistanis try to act as if they are Middle Easterns, they're Arabs. Uh, Arabs uh, treat things in a in a very different manner. We are not Arabs. Uh, there is no real Arab connection or uh, Arabic uh, connection for that matter. Uh, you know, the best connection we have East is uh, Iran and that's about it. It uh, doesn't go really, really, really beyond that. Uh, so I think one must be very proud of our, um, of, of, our South, of our South Asian heritage and the way we actually really think about it. I just wanted to give a couple of examples, which I, again, you know, uh, resonated with me quite a bit. Uh, the first that I just want to read really quick, quickly uh, is the poetry that uh, um, Anita kind of uh, puts in, uh, uh, very well, well, well translated from, from Pashto and then also from Sindhi, uh, at least from the Pashto side, I could understand bits uh, from the originals also. Um, but it's very interesting where, you know, again, these are local Pakhtuns, men and women, uh, that she's uh, talking about who are reacting to the kinds of things that, that are just happening around them. So let me just um, read from uh, this person who, who read this poem uh, in Saidu Sharif in Swat in 2011. Uh, and this is very interesting because 
it's kind of a dialogue between the poet and the people who are listening to him. So it's not just a one-way thing with the with the with the poet is actually just you know sort of talking about himself. It's actually you know gets 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 a gets a gets a reaction, which is this really heartfelt, real reaction, and you know uh, 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 present at that time. So it says uh, it's so the poem is Hetejaj uh, uh, protest. Um, I'm in search of a doctor for the political and spiritual diseases of the nation. Where are the youth who can sacrifice for their nations? Your funerals have been exploded. And then the audience says, yes. Have your mosques been exploded? And then again, the audience says, yes. Your religion and your business were damaged and exploded. Did you protest? They say, no. How you can speak the truth? This is the reason for the explosion and destruction. So at some level, very simple, but at some level, very profound. That this actually just captures, you know, what it actually means, and you know, what it actually, uh, uh, you know, how do people see it? And this is right at 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 the, at the beginning, you know, at the time when Swat had just been liberated from uh, Taliban con con control. And it's interesting, like it goes on uh, with. Uh, you know, uh, images of history, images of how, you know, uh, the Pakhtuns dealt with it, with these things. And it was very interesting that, that it goes on to say, where is Pir Rohan and, and, and Bacha Khan? You do not have the qualities of your forefathers. Is the nation fed up with the people like the Mughals? Yes, they respond. Has every black face become a master or not? Yes. Are the blue-eyed, meaning the, the British, ruling over us or not? No. Did you protest? No. Where is... Uh, Fakir Mastan shot repeatedly by the British in Malakand. You do not have the qualities of your forefathers. So what this poetry actually does is it kind of you know brings together history, but also speaks very powerfully uh, to the local uh, uh, feeling at that time. And then of course af after that, the very powerful poetry was of Hasina Gul of Mardan, which uh, by the end of which she also gets a gets a get, gets an award. And just just want to read a couple of lines from her poetry. I will not tolerate any wrongful power. I cannot call something that is wrong right. But when I look around me, all these oppressive walls, all these suppressive shackles, my lips are sealed and they have been deafened and they have deafened my ears. The oppressive society's eyes bore into me and they swipe at my neck with their claws, trying to silence me so that no one may find out about my, my plight. They want me to listen to them and obey them, but never complain or question. I wish I could gouge their eyes out and break this suppressing clause, but to no avail. They keep coming for me, tormenting me. They bind my hands and my feet and they justify it by telling me where I'll go and to whom I'll go. I look around me and there is no one I can turn to. I haven't a home, so I bow my head and poison myself because I refuse to call what is wrong right. Sometimes I resist, sometimes I bite my tongue. You know, one can perhaps, you know, write a whole whole paper just on this, like, you know, uh, short extract uh, from, her, from her poem, you know, where she's dealt with not only a patriarchal society, uh, to religion for that matter, you know, if I die, where will I end up being? And then the real, you know, helplessness of the human state uh, that she mentions, uh, mentions towards the end of it, but also a deep sense of resistance that, you know, I will not call what is wrong right. And that's re re repeated again and again in her poetry. And these are the real voices 
which really, you know, are from the heart of, you know, our society. And I think, you know, this, uh, um, when I was again uh, reading this, it reminded me of the, uh, of the great floods we had uh, nearly a decade ago, ago now, when all of a sudden, like, you know, the urban Pakistanis began to realize that a lot of Pakistan is still rural. You know, uh, they had forgotten that, you know, we do have, you know, millions and millions of people that actually live in the rural societies, which is actually very different from the way we uh, deal with in urban lands, and especially in elite uh, urban societies. And that's the voice that we have been kind of kind of missing. So, you know, through Anita's travels, you know, through actually, you know, I was actually telling her uh, a couple of days ago that my fav favorite shrine is Sachal Sarma. So I love the fact that uh, there's a lot of a lot of quotation of of him, um, and that was the shrine you know where I went last la last last year uh, was the only shrine that I went to in Sindh where you actually could see Hindus, Muslims, men, women, everyone mingle, uh, and there was no distinction. Uh, and how calm it was, and how normal it it was. I actually lost a couple of my friends in the in in the in the morning kawali there because you know they just kind of you know just wandered wandered away for 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 about an hour and a half, including the one who was complaining about that we will get late. <laughs> so you know that's the lived reality which actually kept this place together and the, the, these are the, the resistance uh, kind of movements that are really kind of uh, uh, coming up so I really think that, that, that that's a very important thing that Anita has touched upon just just quickly and I know I've uh, spent a lot of time on these things just want to mention like two other things uh, which I think are really really important uh, well three perhaps actually uh, one is uh, her uh, uh, discussion of uh, Temur's Lal band uh, now that I find really fascinating because, of course, you know, and and I hope that 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 that, uh, that Temur is here and can actually talk more about it. Uh, but the way I see it is, I actually see it as a very integral part uh, of his great mission to actually bring change into Pakistani society. You know, of course, he's a trade unionist and he works with the uh, uh, Pisan Party and and everything. But in some ways, actually, the change uh, that, he's, that, that he's bringing through is, of course, through political mobilization too. But this, at least to me, has had a greater impact. Uh, and the reason why I say that is that he has taken uh, the Lal band uh, to schools. And the most wonderful thing, which again, you, you, you also capture is to public schools where they don't have this opportunity to engage with, uh, you know, any band, you know, for a, for, a, for a small school, public school that barely makes its ends, ends meet where the teachers, uh, where, you know, it pro probably like, that, like doesn't even have functioning blues or something. Uh, you've got this band coming in and playing and really kind of involving all the kids in it. Uh, and those wonderful videos with all the kids kind of dancing and jumping up and uh, up and down really gives one hope that, you know, at least in this very tense environment, you know, and, and the last 20 years, you know, um, I always remind a lot of my students now that they've grown up in a generation where they've seen barricades, where they've seen metal detectors and heightened security. You know, I remember, you know, I'm not that, that old, but I remember a time when you could just walk in anywhere and there was no security and nothing. And all of this terrorism has changed the ground reality. And to just see the joy on these little, little kids' faces when, uh, you know, Temur sings uh, and brings them in to the whole thing, you know, that actually, uh, even if that is just a moment, you know, a lot of the times, a lot of people do ask, well, is it last, last, lasting? Well, even if it's not, even if it's that two hours of happiness uh, in a very miserable society, uh, that's probably really, really good. If 
if they can be a smile on a child's face for about two hours that that day that's good enough you know i don't even want it to go beyond that fine even if that's the case that is enough and you know temur has told me several times that you know at times he actually gets a fracture on his hand or something but he keeps playing because that energy that these kids give him uh, give him the ability to actually go on and on and i think that's a very uh, kind of a significant thing uh the other thing that i wanted to mention which again fascinated me because i didn't know much about them was uh anita's discussion of the zoya schools uh that was really fascinating because that was a real good focus on science teaching and really grounded science teaching in the environment that they were in um i'd heard the name but i didn't know much about it uh but i but i was quite fascinated to learn their methodology the way they actually did that and the way they were actually um very much uh, uh um uh embedded in their local uh, society and the local culture that 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 they actually operate in uh and that was really again very uh heartening and fascinating to read that you know these kinds of schools are actually doing such great work uh in 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 societies which uh you know uh, a lot of these kids have fallen by the wayside and in a country like pakistan where uh, science and technology is kind of the buzzword but no one really wants to wants to tackle it in a proper manner and, they, and this again you know kind of uh, uh, reminded me of this conversation we had a few days ago with uh, professor nargis mawalwala the dean of science at uh, uh, at mit and professor pervez khudboy actually asked her that you know what do you want to say to the girls of pakistan and she said well you know i i'm sure that there are thousands of nargis mawalwalas there the question is opportunity the question is opportunity and the question is openness to to science as a society we are still not open to science we still think that science isn't really real you know uh, and uh, you know uh, you know gaadi pani pe chal sakti hai and all those other kinds of things uh, so openness to science and opportunity for girls to achieve in science you know these are the two things that you identified yeah really yeah sorry to interrupt you raza has to leave in 5 minutes i'll oh, come back to you i'll come back to you just i just want to give him a chance to leave we did this actually was my last my 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 last point so yeah uh, so i think several examples but that was my last point in saying that it's a, it's a fascinating work and i hope that everyone here uh, buys a copy and reads it and i didn't know rosa had to leave soon but i just want to say i'm really humbled by the fact that rosa saba and yakub really understood the point behind the book and thank you so much I was going to say this at the very end but Reza won't be here. Thank you for your amazing comments and for participating in this. So Reza over thank to you. Thank you. Uh, thank you Anita and uh, no Yakub was so eloquent that obviously I was also and he said uh, many things that I wanted to sort of follow up uh, particularly on that poem that he uh, decoded and uh, unpacked for us. Uh, but I think I, I and I'm sorry I have to leave early because you know this Zoom age means that people know that you don't have travel time so you have to switch from meeting to meeting so i i have another one at uh, in a few minutes uh, but i just want to also add i, I think there there are three points that i want to make and I'm, i think the first one is that you know uh, by all means dr weiss's work and uh, and very uh, you know scrupulous research at the ground level like a sharp anthropologist you know she has uh, collected day stories but there are many areas and questions that she has raised and opened up which require further investigation and more research and i think i i really hope that scholars within pakistan you know at at pied uh, and uh, at itu where uh, yakub teaches 
and, and others would pick up on some of those themes, whether it is poetry or theater or science education, as Jakub mentioned. So, so I think it's a, uh, it sets a framework. It sets a useful framework. And there are things within the book where I, I wanted to know more. So about Zoya schools, for example, I did not know much. I mean, Anita had mentioned them, but I read through that and I wanted to learn more about where these uh, girls are, where, or, you know, where have they landed? What are they, did they get further opportunities in life as Jakub mentioned? So I think that, that that was the first point. I think the second important point was also the review of theater uh, movements. And I think uh, as Jakub mentioned our South Asian heritage and the way South Asian resistance. So a very interesting, uh, you know, anecdote, um, not, not, not really an anecdote, but in 1857's War of Independence, which was a major rebellion against the colonial power in, uh, in uh, India uh, of the 19th century. Uh, so a lot of information was relayed by local street theater groups, the Notanki uh, groups. And that's why, you know, so how would people know about where, where the quote unquote mutiny was taking place or where the Indians had sort of, you know, geared up arms uh, um, and, and were up in arms against the British uh, rule. And so that was one of the biggest, um, the, the first thing I think that the uh, British government did was to actually legislate uh, that you could not perform without the permission of the deputy commissioner or the, or the local magistrate. And those rules still exist in India and Pakistan. And, you know, we are, we are I mean, as what's happening in India, what, what's, what we've seen in Pakistan earlier, that kind of suppression of dissent and of, of local expression is still very much in vogue. While uh, Dr. Weiss, uh, you know, documents all of that, we have a long way uh, to, to enable the flourishing of these local diverse voices and the Mandelas, as uh, uh, Sabah mentioned, that, that, you know, many of these Mandelas remain sort of on chains or gagged or, um, you know, FIR'd or whatever. So I think, I think that's the other. And I think the third important point that I wanted to uh, talk about, you know, in a way, while the book says it's about, you know, countering the violent extreme, uh, violent extremist ideas and, and about the local voices. And, but I think in a way it also opens up uh, the debate, the, the, the unresolved debate on Pakistani identity. The, you know, the ultimate sort of challenge by these local voices, by these voices and movements from below to these larger supranational, one country, one language, one religion, uh, uh, movement, uh, you know, and, and identity. And so, so you read through these narratives and you find that there are multiple ways to be a Pakistani. There are multiple definitions and, and uh, you know, uh, multiple sort of identities. And I think that's the great, great contribution of this book. And once again, I think that, you know, because this is such an important work, it really needs to be, uh, you know, taken forward and, and researched more. And, uh, and I hope uh, that Dr. Weiss, your book also gets translated in, in Urdu and regional languages, because that is also uh, something that we need to sort of, you know, circulate and disseminate because then it's also, uh, and thank God it's uh, written in a very accessible style. And, and, you know, kind of uh, um, avoids the usual academic uh, cliches and, and language which nobody understands except the uh, Dr. Bangesh and, and his uh, cohorts and, <laughs> and Dr. Sabah Khatak. So, so the thing is, you know, these are, these are stories of the people should go to the people and should be accessible. And, 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 I, and I think that's the key uh, point I wanted to make. And finally, I think what, what is also 
a very important uh, uh, part of this book, uh, which I, uh, which I think it's a, which Dr. Sabah Khatak mentioned was the chapter on religion and how, you know, within the, you know, defying the monolithic understanding of Islam and an Islamic uh, uh, identity within Pakistan. You know, even there, there's so much contest, there's so much diversity that we often suppress that. And, you know, in fact, that diversity has turned, has, has turned into a, a, a form of um, uh, violence, a, a form of, uh, you know, leveraging those differences and turning them into violent uh, narratives against different sects or groups or people or individuals. And I think that that is a chapter that I really, I learned a lot from that. And I think, uh, I hope that others so, sort of pick up and take it further. So with that, thank you so much uh, for inviting me, Durin Ayab and uh, uh, Dr. Anita once again, uh, congratulations. And I hope this book is bought by all uh, of those who are present and read and disseminated. Well, I just wanted to add though, thank you so much, Reza. Again, you, you got it, you understood what motivated me, but I hope you and others here could also write some reviews of it because if I was in Pakistan, I would be giving a lot of talks and all, but the pandemic has really locked me down here in Oregon. Um, I would, the reason I went with Oxford University Press and it's in paperback, it's very, I mean, it's a thousand rupees for a book, which is, I mean, this is, this I negotiated hard for, but because I want it to be widely read in Pakistan. So anything that anybody here can do to just get people, whether you like the book or not, get people to read the book, I would really appreciate that. Thank you, Raza. Uh, Dr. Sabah, would you like to say something or we can go to the floor now and come back to you after that? Please go ahead, give others a chance to ask or comment, please go. Okay. Uh, Maliha Satar, I can see your hand raised. Maliha, go on. Uh, hello, everyone. I hope all of you are doing well. It's so good to see some of you here. Dr. Nayab, this is probably first time I'm seeing you your video on, right? So yes, it's good to see you here, Fahad and others also. Um, it's, it's, uh, I've, I've uh, been reading uh, about this book. And I think it is uh, definitely, um, I will give it a read because we have been uh, learning about other voices of hopes that are somehow present here. But there are a few things that I want to ask, and I would like Dr. Anita's views on that. Uh, first of all, I think that what you have talked about, what I've learned so far, these are all the individual-led efforts, right? Or these are the efforts that are being made by the civil society organizations, mainly. How does that actually help in 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 a in an atmosphere where the state has been furthering certain certain sort of uh, violent uh, uh, groups, you know, especially you mentioned some of the Sufi poetry here. I know growing up uh, in in a household that actually was influenced highly highly by the Sufi thoughts, and uh, we never knew about the different sects until I went into the university. So my father would often say that, that since you are in university, you are asking about these stupid things which never mattered, right? So I think that is something that happened and um, we, we would always learn that, you know, bandir dhade, masjid dhade, dhade jo kuch dehenda. 
you know which means ke destroy the mosque destroy the temple destroy whatever you may please do not break the human hearts because god resides there right but now this very sufi thought um this has been taken over by the group of people who are turning out to be extremist you know i'm thinking about salman tasi's murder it was um, a, a group uh, which actually sort of supported the the murderer um was also uh, an ardent supporter of the sufi thought so what do what do we do about that and besides also i'm i've also been thinking about it this securitization of the minds that has happened you know you watch something on the tv it's an ordinary drama you see okay the police is here and you realize uh, they're not going to help they're further going to you know create problem for the person who needs the help what do you do with that you know this is an ordinary person's idea about living in this state and then also um, you know i i also think that uh, uh, raza rumi has already talked about it that it's very important that we also translate these work in urdu and talk about this work in the regional languages uh, because you know it's not that the sort of a work that you're talking about is not being done in urdu but uh, i think the discussion is not happening in in the local languages and which i think is very problematic because you talk to the friends uh, there's sort of echo chambers where we living we're all very pluralistic i think we've lost malia's oral feed but um and perhaps she'll come back but let me just comment on the first really the first question that she asked because that's really important when i started off doing this research i was not sure what i was going to do and you know as a sociologist i mean most of my work is political sociology the word political i did a lot of political analysis this book is very different i i decided that i was not going to let all the all the different political antagonisms and and the questions of the role of the state and everything um i wasn't going to let it stop um my conducting this research i mean it you know it it almost immobilized me at first people would say to me and it was really good that people said this how could you write this without talking about where the violence has stemmed from where the terrorist terrorism emerges from and i decided you know what everybody writes about that but we can i mean we have guesses we have thoughts but you know um salim shazad was killed trying to um get to the bottom of it but i decided that that's not the work that i was doing here that i was really trying to capture what voice capture local voices and i was really going to try to understand what these local actions are and i really tried to look at those places those people and and activities that are not funded by external donors the only um discussion of the state at all that i've included was in the very first chapter and that was really for presumably people outside of pakistan who don't know the history both of of extremism 
and the military response, but there's a lot of people within Pakistan who probably don't know that. And then the other thing is I did not write about any political parties at all. I wrote about a social movement, kind of stuck and hidden in the last chapter, but I wrote about the Pakhtun Tahafiz movement more as a response like the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States. Anita, you have muted yourself. Oh, I was done. That's why I thought we'd go on to the next question. And I'm sorry that it seems we've lost her because yeah, we lost great, great comments. I think, I think you got her question anyway. Idris, you have your hand raised. Idris Faja. Yeah. So, Anita, I was just uh, coming to what you have alluded just now in response to the previous question that uh, what if uh, the terrorism resides in those areas where this message of Sufism and poetry cannot get through, the drivers of uh, terrorism are inherent in poverty and the Fata areas and the South Punjab, et cetera, where this message cannot get through. So how can this be used to counter terrorism? Especially if there is illiteracy as well and uh, the, Financing is one of the driver of uh, terrorism. Then That's how an interesting. It? It's an interesting question, Idris, because um, I mean that's why. Please do read the chapter on the schools, the education. I give a backdrop of education in Pakistan, you know, challenges over primary education, but then I talk explicitly about the Bachchan schools and the Zoya schools. I have done, you know, in the course of the research that I've done in Pakistan, I've done a lot of, um, I've, I have gone to many, many schools all over the country, universities, as well as primary, secondary mm -hmm. schools. But I have gotten such different answers to questions from students in these two school systems than elsewhere, because they, what's unique about them, and I would really like to expand this. I could just see myself walking into villages that are trying different kinds of experimental um, schools and all. Um, but what they, I, I asked young men, I mean, um, at, at a few different Pachachan schools all over Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, I asked young men and young women in the in the um, in grades ten, you know, by that by that point, they can actually understand my question and answer it. And I said, "What would you do if your brother, cousin, your friend decides I'm, you know, I just can't take it anymore. I I'm going to go off and join the Taliban." What I had expected when I've asked similar questions to kids in schools in Lahore and in um, and in Sargoda and other parts of Pakistan, what I had expected for them was to say, take care of yourself, um, think of your family, stay in contact with your family, all these things. But the kids at the Bachachan school said, no, I would tell them this is not how we build a better society. This is, you know, we all need to be, to try to build a better world together. And I heard that also at the Zoya schools. The Zoya schools have been very successful with STEM subjects, science, technology, and math and all. 
but they also teach peace. That's the thing. All you have to do is inject a sense of what, what both school systems have done. Inject a sense that you're a member of the larger society. Where do you fit in? So we could say poverty is a driver of terrorism and extremism. We can say a lot of things. But what I found in the course of doing the research for this book is that there, it's complicated. And there are a lot of things that, that the society itself is doing to raise an awareness. I mean, places like these schools and others that who I've written about to raise an awareness of who you are as a social member and to make a positive contribution to society despite other things that are happening. We have a trope that money comes in to support terrorism and extremism. It really is now, it's become a trope. There's so much more that we can do or that is, I'm, this book is not saying what should be done. This book is simply documenting what is happening. And there's so much that is happening where people are taking a stand and saying, wait a minute, I want my culture back. I want my society back. And to me, one of the people who exemplifies this is the mu musician in Jamshoro, Seth Samejo. Seth's the only person to appear in two different chapters of the book. He's in the poetry chapter and he's also in the music chapter because his idea, I mean, he sees his music um, as being influenced the most by um, Shalatif and it, you know, grounded, connected to the land, but it's also not prescriptive. It's just a celebration of Sindhi culture and society, which is a part of the cacophony of voices making, and I think it was Yacoub who, or Reza who pointed this out, the cacophony of differences that make up Pakistan. I hope that answered your Uh, Wafa P, you can ask your question, please. Um, hello, everyone. Hi, Dr. Anita. Um, my question is when, from research point of view, because these initiatives were taken in different parts of the, uh, Pakistan, apart from the motivation to counter the violence and extremism with these uh, cultural initiatives, did you find any similarities between these individuals in their attitude or in their strategy? to implement um, their work. Thank you. Thank you, Wafa. Thanks for coming from Scotland and for your comments. Um, I guess if I was to capture one similarity in attitude was the fact that they really want their culture. I don't wanna say culture back because in some cases it had never been lost, but they, they really wanted to affirm you know, social culture, that this is who we are. We're not, you know, and they weren't, most were not saying that they were responding to a lot of negativity or, but there definitely is a sense that they felt that there was a chipping away um, of, their, of their society, you know, with all this violence and extremism, like what Idris had pointed out before. But I think that the one similarity was, this is who we are. 
and we want to manifest it. One of the one of the NGOs that so impressed me, I mean, unbelievably impressed me, was Biswa, the Batai Social Watch Advocacy outside of Kherpur, about how they went into different villages and they just sat down with people and said, you know, you're killing each other out of enmity. Why don't we sit down together and try to come up with solutions on how we can build and get you know, build together and get out of this extremism. And then I went with them later on and saw that this one village where they had been collaborating with local people had raised money to purchase an ambulance. I mean, what more solid substantive um, result can you see trying to get past the extremism? So instead of people having to use their money to um, get their relatives out of jail. Now they were all able together to collaborate and raise funds so that in medical emergencies from all communities, they could get people to hospitals in Kherpur a couple hours away. I hope that's a good example for this. Uh, Raja Rafi? Rafi? Rafi, unmute yourself. Uh, can you guys hear me now? Yeah. Yeah. So I have a quick question. So first of all, before I ask my question or more or less it's comment, uh, I would like to say that I have not read Anita's book in its entirety. So whatever I say has to be taken with a pinch of salt, maybe a tablespoon of it. So uh, so my, uh, quickly, so uh, uh, some of the speakers in the webinar are stressed upon and quite rightly so that um, the uh, like Sufism as a, as a um, as a sect of Islam is something that is uh, more tolerant, and, and they were talking about on similar on similar lines. They were making comments. I agree with with that to a certain extent, but I also think, and uh, this is my question at large, that um, uh, whenever uh, extremism is discussed, you know, this uh, uh, concept is of Sufi Islam is brought by. Uh, many people and uh, into the discussion and I feel it's more or less an apologist point of view because there are other forms of Islam too and that have been really like prevalent in Pakistan that are more hardcore and unless and until we recognize that those are uh, prevalent in our society who cannot resist the issue at hand and uh, uh, go about addressing it. So it is more like a comment uh, but it also has an attached question to it. So this is my like, my two cents. Yeah, well, thank you. you. Well, I, I do hope you get to read the whole book because like, for example, um, Dr. Kiblayaz, who is the chairperson of the Council of Islamic Ideology, I had countless conversations with him. I first met him in Peshawar where he was, when he was teaching at um, the University of Peshawar. And then in the course of my research, he was invited to become the chairperson of the Council of Islamic Ideology. So that whole, I mean, everything I worked on with him, um, you know, even to the Christmas cake cutting ceremony that he held within the Council of Islamic Ideology that really had an impact on everybody who, um, who had participated in that event. And I should say that as the event was getting underway, he whispered to me, you're the chief guest. And I was like, what? But it was like, I was so happy to see 
religious leaders from throughout Pakistan, from different religions, from different sects, all represented at this meeting. And they were all saying how happy they were to be there. And then they turned to me and said, do you have any comments? And I looked at everybody and said, I know how happy you are to be here. I hope that you can take this message of unity back to your congregations and can build on it there. So that's one thing. I mean, the poetry we talked about and some of it, like even the cover of the book and these virtual backgrounds, you can't see it there. The cover of the book with Shima Kermani and women and accompanied with women from the Women's Action Forum in Hyderabad. I mean, what a power, I thought, the reason I selected that for the cover, what a powerful action of defiance against the extremists um, right after the Sufi shrine of, of Shabazz Kalundud was bombed in Selwan. And they went there to do the, to perform the Damal as an act of defiance. That's one thing about Sufism. But then the whole chapter on religion looks at what religious leaders themselves have been doing to unify, to be able to organize, to counter extremism and to communicate with their religious communities. I also have a, um, a sizable section of that chapter on Christians and Christian responses to what is happening. So yes, we've in this webinar, we've been talking more about Sufism, but I actually do cover a lot of other issues within religion. I mean, it is covering a lot in the book, which is why I cut out a whole lot of other things I could have included. I had thought I would include more on, on press coverage in, in Pakistan and a few other issues, but I felt that this as a work, try to capture it. I should say that my use of the term extremism really came from some guidance I got from Khadim Hussein, who I thought would be joining us. He's the executive director of the Bachachan schools. And he said, you know, we don't call them terrorists. We call them extremists. And I agree with that sentiment because, you know, one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. And I don't even know what the word terrorist means anymore, but I know what the word extremist means. And uh, someone who uses violence and, and goes to extremes. So anyhow, on to the next comment or Yakub. Final question from the floor before we turn back to uh, Sabha and Yakub Fahad. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, Dr. Anita, I'm interested in knowing um, the dimension of uh, community-driven development, because in the context of Pakistan, um, the community development with the, over the years, it, it, it is turning into a buzzword, um, losing out on the spirit of the third degree of participation. Even the more contemporary examples uh, do not, the scholarly debates say that they do not really imbibe the spirit of what the third degree of participation is all about. While reading through the chapters of the book, I strongly feel that most of the examples, actually all of it, if I'm not overstating it, um, those to depict the true spirit of the third degree of participation. So do you think that all those instances, as you have, have pointed out about the examples of Christian community residing in the country as well, um, that they do not really need any feature of social engineering or any external forces to, you know, kind of, 
get the things done or to uh, lay out their framework for social change and do you think that those are the examples which we can resonate for the different social movements across south asia be it nadi poka movement or chipko movement or those kind of movements so do you think that the examples as as explained in the chapters of the book um, really are uh, speaking something on the third degree of participation that's a really good question fahad and i want to mention that i didn't i really shied away from being prescriptive or to say this is something others can emulate i mean of course at the bottom you know the very bottom they can emulate these things but some of the you know it was the wide variety of different kinds of I mean, I didn't emphasize on social movements that sociologists often do. I included some social movements like, as I mentioned before, Biswa and Huendo um, Kor in Khyber Pukhtunkhwa and a few and, and a few others and to what their activities have actually been. Um, I'm not sure to what, ex I mean, there's so much more that could be written about social movements in Pakistan and implications for social movements elsewhere. But I, I actually don't think that any other place has sort of had to thrown, throw off the shackles of fear and, and, and in some cases, like in parts of Sindh, parts of Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, parts of Southern Punjab, that they've had to throw off, you know, fear and, and desperation that, um, that that um, has really prompted the emergence of these of these movements. Um, so I, I can't say if they're applicable elsewhere, but I do want to tell everybody, I'm so glad my son, if you see a golfer in these pictures, my son used one of his, I'm glad my son has joined us, who I thank profusely at the very beginning of the book. So I'm glad he's here. And my sister's also here. Saba, would you like to say something before we give uh, the mic back to Dr. Anita? I will just say that this has been a very rich discussion and I agree that there are many issues that we could not elaborate on, especially the, the question on Sufism and how actually since Musharraf times that became the apology. Uh, I'm very aware of that, but I think Anita has not used it in the apology context. She has only used it in the context of um, resistance poetry. And of course, there are many critiques of Sufism, and uh, but this book is not about that. It is not focusing on Sufism. It's just that in our conversation that came up. So if that's giving uh, that, the impression that this is an apology, it certainly is not. Um, I just wanted to say that there are a di very diverse array of initiatives from Orangi pilot project to, uh, you know, um, something in FATA. Uh, along the length of Pakistan. Uh, and there are many other, many, many other initiatives that many of us, when we go into the, for our field work, or even if 
when we go to our villages or where you know wherever uh, we come across many many uh, voices of resistance i've been to sakhar where women sort of insisted on the schools and took you know the landlords had locked the rooms that they had supposedly donated for a school and they unlocked them throughout uh, throughout his wheat or whatever and said we want our teachers there or you know other initiatives by the rsps the the rural support programs in pakistan where whether it's for um, um sectarian harmony or other aspects i mean to me all of it is very political when people decide that they have to do something about uh correcting something for their future for their children for for themselves so so i think this is a book and there are many other books that can follow up this book and i hope anita will continue to keep writing and of course there are some areas where things have not worked out that anita like um uh, was pointed out earlier by yakub bangish that anita has been very honest about it she's pointed out where things have not worked out uh, some initiatives that could not sustain themselves though they were started with the best of intentions um i think it's an ongoing project there is no beginning and no end and that you know that is the way life is especially here but i think after the recent elections in the us <laughs> we find many more affinities there mm -hmm. as well i'll stop here thanks ava this one Hello. more question from the floor uh, amirgani yeah thank you very much uh, nayab uh, that's very kind of you and uh, dr wise what a pleasure listening to you today I am an ex-World Banker, uh, so basically, I would like to make sure that uh, whatever I've said, because a lot of the colleagues here who are going to listen to me and seven years of reformation that I've gone through after having retired early from the World Bank, uh, has not done me well. Because no matter what I say, they say your opinion is the opinion of the West. But let me actually ask you a few questions. Uh, and i have two basic questions the first one is uh, in terms of social movements what you call social movements and i have to echo sabha on this that social movements per se pakistan for me and if you somebody mentioned opp orangi pap pride project somebody mentioned something i think shweb sultan's uh, mention was not done but to be very honest uh, as world banker working in almost 38 countries i have begun to realize and i you know that i failed in africa doing social movement and social mobilization uh orangi pap pakistan and uh, india and maybe some parts of bangladesh are unique in how communities get together and i think the reason communities get together and i think you alluded to that are, are primarily because these are socially diversified communities you can find one hindu lender in the middle of nowhere surrounded by a plethora of uh, muslim uh, believers but the traditions uh and the governance structures that override them over time have been different so the community feels it necessary that since their basic needs are not being fulfilled they they rise right 
so to me social movements in pakistan have to be uh, made distinct which i would like to ask you a question did you find that number one there are cause based social movements then there are generic social movements generic social movements to me are the do deliver on causes but these are basic human causes the right to have a voice the right to govern themselves etc etc right so i think that first of this is that i think we need to distinguish between them and as i've very rightly said i think your book and may god give you more life we we all want to partner with you on your next book and make sure that you know we write about the the richness of why the indus civilization comes together the way it does uh because it is really something very touching something i found in hungary across the danube because i don't know i always at the plat river valley and the indus have had a long diatribe I, my my i married into somebody from plat river valley so i know that you know this is something so i think there's a simile second question for you is that don't you think that ethically this is like you know uh, i had a professor back in the 80s i'm a ut austin longhorn sorry texas a very secessionist state but somehow i fitted very well as a pashtun in that state um and one of the things i came back understanding is that funding matters you know uh, if you look at farmers right now pharmaceutical industry in the world right now it is unethical it's probably the most corrupt uh, industry that they can actually do things just because money makes the mayor go it it does influence opinions so to make this kind of research that you're doing and it's sort of totally ethical which it will never be because i'm not talking about good enough so for good enough don't you think it's time that we raised money in pakistan to do this kind of work and make sure that we do some kind of crowdsourcing to to really take forward some of it because i do really believe that some of what you despite your deep research you were you were not born here and i, I don't hold that against you but i think that you know you need to really differentiate between as you say uh, you you have taken some very provocative lines and i i think that this father example you gave etc do you know that it was actually and i didn't say that i mean it was it's challenged you know people don't like being challenged so the movement has to come from the community the social movements that you talk about so i i could say more but nayab thank you for letting me ask my question thank you okay there there's a lot there that i would need to unpack and i know people are probably getting tired now but let me say a couple of things i think you might not have been with us at the very beginning i've been coming to pakistan for 43 years So yeah, I wasn't born here, but I did Lahore Nahide ka pir peda nahi hua. So I was reborn in Lahore, first January 1978. Um, for my son who doesn't know Urdu, it means if you haven't seen Lahore, you haven't been born. Um, so number one, but I was looking. The social movements I wrote about were ones that were formed indigenously, were ones that were that came about. locally i did not look at social movements that came about because of foreign funding foreign interference i mean usaid has gotten involved in a lot of different things now i did look at organizations like um like the um rangda karachi you know when the but it started out um and i interviewed a lot of people involved in that art movement in karachi started out with these artists from the indus school getting up at 2:00 in the morning 
going out, putting whitewash on the wall, on the walls that had hate language, and then quickly putting up stencils on the walls of flowers and love and hearts and things like that. Later on, much later on, years later, it started to receive funding from, from external sources, but they didn't get the funding um, initially. And so that's the kind of organization I was looking at. Secondly, I, I caught where you said that you had tried to start social movements in Africa. Well, that's the whole thing. They start from the ground up. Whether I was in Sargoda, I wrote about a movement in Sargoda also. I mean, it, one, of the, one of the big things, I remember talking with Moid Youssef, who was at the time was with the US Institute for Peace and he's now doing other things in Pakistan. But he said to me, I don't know about this whole CVE thing. Um, I don't think it can be effective. I said, that's exactly it. I mean, like with Hegel, I'm turning it on, I'm turning it on its head because you can't have external actors create programs to effectively counter violent extremism. But yet, and I don't want to say it has to come from within, no. What I'm saying is, is that there's so much going on about local people affirming who they are, what their society is. And that affirmation itself is, is I think the single most effective way to counter extremism. My final comment is that the Zoya public schools, the Zoya schools were created by a man who had retired from the IMF. He felt that, um, I mean, his daughter, unfortunately, his daughter named Zoya, she um, was a doctoral student at Yale in the US, um, contracted um, a brain tumor and unfortunately passed away. And he decided that all that he had done with the IMF gave him the resources that he could actually help to create these Zoya schools. Is it a social movement? Not really, it's an educational movement. Has he enlisted a lot? a lot of other people in Southern Punjab to try to advocate for it. Well, yeah, I mean, they're supportive of it, but it's a school system that he put up, but a school system that's teaching values of peace, diversity and tolerance to their children, very poor children who really have to walk on, they have to walk to these schools, but teaching them this in, about social values, local social values, while also delivering a high quality education. I think that captures it. Okay. Jakub, any final words? I think, well, a lot has, has been said, but it just uh, sort of, uh, from the last comment, it kind of uh, uh, sparked me into into saying, saying that, that I think uh, it's very, uh, hard to sort of you know differentiate movements into saying you know th this is completely indigenous and this is like you know foreign sponsored or something because of course things are inspired across uh, across the world that's the that's how ideas actually actually travel and this whole kind of a thing between you know local and and uh, foreign i at least for one react very badly to it because i think that really makes no 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 difference where you were you were born uh, it depends on how much you know about the place and how you and how you know about the place and i'll just give one uh, fun example towards the end of it because you know just perhaps to end on a interesting note um 
that in the late 1950s, uh, a family friend of the Nehru's went up to Jawaharlal Nehru and asked him that, you know, they, they wanted their son to go up to Eton, uh, to Harrow, as uh, Nehru had, had gone. And uh, Nehru said, oh, no, no, don't send your son to Eton, because, uh, to Harrow, because when he'll come back, he'll not be well adjusted. Um, and the parents like looked very uh, uh, quizzically at the Prime Minister of India and said, but, you know, sir, you went to Harrow and, you know, it's fine. And he said, well, yes, that's what I'm saying. I'm not well, well adjusted as yet either. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, uh, it's not that easy to say, you know, who is who is local and who's actually foreign, who's actually knows about what they are, what, what they're actually talking about. Uh, I think that's what we'll see through the books and through the actual work that they that they produce produce, which of course Anita has uh, done to a very high level. Uh, the last thing that I just want, want to say here is that I think, you know, as uh, Raza said, I just wanted to echo his uh, words at the end, uh, that this has opened new avenues of research, but also I think new avenues of contemplation, because yes, all these things are happening in Pakistan, which means that Pakistan isn't falling apart at, at, at the seams. Uh, but these things are happening to a large extent in India also, but India is kind of falling apart too, to a, to a certain extent. And I think the question that remains, which is both an academic and yet also a very important policy uh, question is, how do we amplify these things? How do we support these, these things as the civil society to actually take them forward uh, and to create that kind of a lasting change uh, that is needed for the society to actually regenerate itself? You know, just uh, last week we had the um, uh, launch of Bacha Khan's autobiography. And, you know, whatever Bacha Khan spoke about stood for 100 years down the line, it's exactly the same questions. You know, you read about Bacha Khan in the 1920s when he set up those Azad schools. Those are the exact same questions right now that we are talking about. Uh, so the question is really how to deal with those issues that all these different people in different parts of Pakistan are dealing with this in this own way, but that's not enough. Uh, and I think, you know, we need to then amplify this, support this further and actually take this forward so that the narrative that's kind of, you know, kind of was lost, so, so to speak, or went out of hand, uh, because, you know, some people can scream more than the others, uh, is actually reset uh, towards focus on these myriad of voices and faces uh, that really speak from the heart. And I think that's uh, my last word on it. Thank you. Thank you. That, that just really exemplified to me what was amazing about doing this research. I felt that I was, you know, here I thought I've been going to Pakistan for so long. Um, I mean, the APS attack happened in December, 2014. Summer of 2015, I spent in Islamabad and traveled a bit elsewhere, just trying to figure out what I wanted to write about and went up some um, alleys that I ended up not writing about, you know, like the, um, the rural support programs and some other things. but. Basically what I ended up doing was I discovered a Pakistan that I had not known anything about before. I hadn't heard of such Sarmis previously. I didn't know the long history of Bacha Khan. I had spent most of my time, not all of it, but most of my time in Pakistan in Punjab. And Punjabis don't talk about Bacha Khan as the man who he was and his contributions that he did. So that was quite remarkable. I was fortunate I applied to, for, for the um, support for my research mostly came from um, the, Harry, the Harry Frank Guggenheim Foundation that supports research on peace and peace related initiatives. And I, the reason why I applied for that was because 
it's independent, and there were no restrictions on where I could go. I mean, AIPS, the American Institute of Pakistan Studies, Fulbright and others, some, you know, you can do research in Lahore and Islamabad and with special permission, Karachi. And that was like, no, that's not gonna, I want to go and immerse myself in the rest of Pakistan. And what I found is, and this was, this was terrific. And, you know, as a university professor, what I found is if I gave talks at different universities and um, professional development seminars for doctoral students and you know, junior, junior faculty, I was always provided with a place to stay and, and vibrant conversation about who else in an, in an area I should meet. So that really enabled me to travel around a lot of Pakistan. There were a number of people who helped me, supported me, who gave me insights and encouraged me to meet other people. I list them all in the acknowledgements. My initial plan had been to come to Pakistan. I would have been there already and to present each person who I wrote about and then a few other people with copies of the book. Well, again, I'm in lockdown in Eugene, Oregon and I can't go anywhere for a while. So I'm grateful to Pied for pushing me. I mean, I wanted to do this in person, but I realize it's good that we're at least having the conversation virtually. So thank you, Fahad. We've been in communication about this for quite some time. And um, I'm really glad that we've done this. I'm very grateful to Pied. I'm sorry Nadim was unable to, um, to join us. Nadim, who I've known since his old IMF days, um, so I've known him for a really long time. <laughs> and um, so this was great. And I hope that everybody here has been able to either get a copy of the book or borrow a copy of the book and, um, and share it however you can so that people can see the amazing activities that are going on in Pakistan by local people to take a stand and say, this is who we are and recapture their culture. And my book is also a celebration of those cultures. Thank you, Anita. I think there's nothing left to say. You've concluded everything. So thank you very much. Thank you, the discussants and all the participants. And hopefully we'll have you back at PIED once this pandemic is over. Thank you, everyone. And one last thank you to Saba and Yakub for staying here so long and for all yeah. the contributed almost quarter to 10 now <laughs> thank you everyone good night good office good office